In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. The epistles for the first three Sundays in Epiphany are a continuous reading from Romans chapter 12, which explain how faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that has been um, explained in the first chapters of Romans, are to be <clears throat> exhibited in our behavior. Today's epistle instructs us to repay evil with good. In words that echo Jesus' exhortation to love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount, St. Paul writes, quote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is among the hardest and least practiced moral teachings of the New Testament. Have you done something good for your enemy lately? Indeed, the current season of time in the world has encouraged a kind of hatred for one's enemies. And this raises questions. Should we view this teaching as a sort of lofty but unattainable moral ideal? And how comfortable should we be with our failure to practice it? The moral teachings of the Bible are distinguished from other moral teachings because they are rooted in two objective truths. First, God created everything. Therefore, justice requires that we honor God above all things. This is the foundation for the first four of the Ten Commandments. Second, God made us in his image. This means that what we do to our neighbor who bears God's image, even if our neighbor is our enemy, we do as unto God. This is the foundation for Commandments 5 through 10. Apart from this objective basis, moral teaching tends to become utilitarian. We should do this right thing because we are told it will be better for everyone if we do. However, since this larger good is not embraced by everyone, morality becomes an elective rather than a requirement. Because biblical morality is rooted in the nature of God and his creation, the commandments to love God and love our neighbor cannot be treated as electives. Your neighbor bears the image of God, whether or not you see that image clearly. God will hold you accountable for how you treat what he has made, whether or not you think such love is a good idea or will benefit you. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. In the incarnation, God became man, the one who gave the law on Mount Sinai became like us to show us what love looks like in action. The meaning of love for God is shown by Christ's complete offering of himself to God on the cross. 
And St. Paul exhorts us to follow this in Romans 12, 1, where he exhorts us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. The meaning of love for neighbor is shown by Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world, including the sins of those who killed him. As Romans 5 says, quote, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the foundation for the teaching that we should love not just the neighbors we like, but the enemy neighbors we don't like. God loved us even when we were his enemies. Now, most Christians are aware of this conceptually, but most find it difficult to practice. The ability to actually love our enemies comes from a personal experience of God's love for me as a sinner and an enemy. It is one thing to know about grace. It is another thing to experience grace. Once I have experienced God's love for me in a personal way in response to my actual sin, it is harder for me to continue hating those who do me wrong. A personal experience of grace requires two things. First, I must realize how much I have personally rebelled against God by my unfaithful, ungrateful, and self-centered behavior. This is referred to as conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit allows me to see my thoughts, words, and deeds, and their consequences more clearly in the light of God's revealing presence. Second, grace requires an experience of the loving embrace of God in response to my experience of conviction. God meets my personal and willful rebellion with the extended arms of Jesus on the cross and welcomes me back into the family of God. These two things, conviction of sin and the experience of forgiveness and embrace, comprise the devastating and transforming experience of grace. Devastating because it destroys our former sense of self. Transforming because it allows our new self, made in the image of Christ, to emerge from that death. Think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She was dragged to Jesus in public so that she could not hide from what she had done wrong. It was in the light for all to see. But Jesus met her with forgiveness rather than condemnation. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Because of the experience of grace, the command to go and sin no more would not be heard as mere moralizing. Rather, having experienced love, 
she was now set free to love others in a new way. This is the essential experience of prayer. It began in baptism, where our sin was met with forgiveness and the adoption as children of God. It continues in the Eucharist, where our confessed sins of thought, word, and deed are met with the body and blood of Jesus, which make us clean and renew our ability to call God Abba, Father. It is our daily experience. We wrestle with the disorders and mixed motives of our own hearts, yet God is still with us in Christ according to his promise. Because we are loved despite our sins, Christ commands us to love our enemies despite their sins. We should note that loving our enemies also requires us to speak the truth to them. It is not loving to see someone doing what is wrong and not tell them. This is our prophetic witness for Christ. But our prophetic witness must be rooted in our desire that they repent and change. It must be rooted in a real motive of love, or else it is not a prophetic witness at all. It is just us being angry at our enemy. We have trouble practicing this teaching because we have not truly experienced grace. We may pray the liturgical words of complete repentance and absolute forgiveness, but we may experience conditional acceptance and ongoing guilt or regret. For some people, the enemy they need to love first is within themselves. God fully loves them, but they have not yet fully learned to love themselves, which means to accept God's love for them as they are, not as they would like to be. The main objection to the command to love our enemies is that it is unjust. We are letting people off the hook. But that is not what the epistle says. The epistle says, quote, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The problem with our attempts at vengeance is that we are not just. Therefore, we repay the evil we have experienced with our own evil. And we become subject to God's judgment also. God wants us to maintain our innocence so that he can pass judgment in our favor and against our enemies. This requires patience, faithfulness, and trust in God. Our example is Jesus. He prayed for his enemies and then died for their sins. God passed judgment in his favor by raising him from the dead and by passing historical judgment on Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. As we maintain our innocence in Christ and practice loving our neighbor, even if he is an enemy, 
God promises that he will vindicate us eventually with our own resurrection from the dead. And God promises to recompense all who have wronged us and refuse to repent. For all these reasons, let us remember that love for enemy is not merely a pious suggestion. It is a commandment from God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.